RDI Insights. Mike Dempsey in conversation with Royal Designers. Hello and welcome to the RDI Insights podcast series, where I will be interviewing major figures in the design industry who have been made RSA Royal Designers for Industry, the highest accolade for a designer in the UK. The award was introduced in 1936 to highlight and honour the work of industrial designers for their sustained creative excellence and benefit to society. There is a moment in theatre when the audience settle, the house lights go down, and we are invited to enter into another world, and for a brief moment in our busy lives, we suspend our disbelief. A large part of the artifice of theatre is the set design and the costumes worn by the characters. My guest today has spent three decades helping to create the magic that is theatre, and in 2008 was recognised for her services to theatre with an MBE. Sue Blaine came to public notice with a wild and wacky production that at first sight she didn't care for or felt the inclination to work on. But she did, for a pittance. That production was the Rocky Horror Show, and the rest is history. Join me now to listen in on a conversation that I had with Sue at her home in Dorset. In it she reveals that, although she has been a professional designer for over 30 years, that spans theatre, opera, musicals and film, she still has self-doubt and those first-night nerves. One of the things I wanted to, to kick off with is the fact that since 1972, the combined total of the various productions you've been involved with, that's both production design and costume, is 82. So that seems to more or less give you about you know, two, maybe three a year. That's over a 35-year period. You were made a royal designer in... in uh, it was 2005, actually. 2005. In 2007, you were made an MBE for your services to drama. And a little bit of frivolity. <laughs> I checked. Uh, you're you're a, a Torian, aren't you? Yes, I am. So I was interested to know whether the characteristics of Torians fitted you. Apparently, they never do things quickly. They don't like making snap decisions. They hate change are extremely creative, love flowers, um, music and opera, um, and they're most suited to a practical career. They're highly amusing, quite outrageous in appearance, but underneath the crazy exterior is a background of true talent and very hard work. Would you say that? Oh, kind of my goodness. <laughs> well, some of it's a little immodest to agree to, but... Um, in principle, that's very interesting, What you, the last bit you read out. Um, certainly, the, the, I'm very conscious in my work, and have always been, that I love the blend of creative and practical. That's, and I think I mentioned this to you before, that one of the things that thrilled me about becoming a designer for industry... Mm with or without the royal bit, um, was the fact that I'd, I really value industrial elements yeah. of pure design. Yeah. Yeah. Debatable whether theatre design, as with many of our, um, what do we call them, our areas of design, are actually pure design or applied art. I think mm. that's a huge debate and always has been. But I do feel that there's a sort of industrial element to certainly to theatre design and to many of the other disciplines that are handled yes. within our faculty. And I think that gives wonderful scope for all sorts of things. And I didn't watch it very much last night because I'd recorded it and it was a little bit late, but I videoed the um, piece about the Airbus 380. Oh, yes, yes. And I think that... It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And I think that's going to be... When I sit down and watch it properly, I just skim through it. I think that's going to embody a yeah. lot of those beautiful things that we love well, about our industries. That, um, no, I think it does. And certainly, the, I mean, I can make quick decisions once I'm on the run. Hmm. You know, once I'm confident and the, the initial design process o is over, and, for instance, in the case of costumes, if I'm actually in a costume fitting and 
you know, we're looking at details or there's something radically not working or whatever, then I can, I can move fast then. But it's a, it's a long process to get to the confidence of then being able to be sure of what I'm doing. Well, we'll, we'll talk about how, so you, that how, is you, accurate. how you get to that yeah. confidence. But um, it, that's but, certainly uh, accurate. Um, I, what, what I wanted to, to just touch on right now, before going sort of backwards, as it were, is what, what you've been doing more recently. And I know you've been involved with the David uh, Bintley's production uh, in Japan of Aladdin, and I know that you've worked with him before because he was at the Birmingham Royal Ballet as artistic Correct, director. he is and he's still. Not, he's still. And he's yes. also, is he not director of the, of the National Ballet? He is. Unusually, he's artistic director so of two companies as of... He took over the Japan one in um, December. Mm. So t- could you tell me, just tell me a little bit about the, um, the Aladdin uh, production? In Japan, and I think there was a possibility it might come here. Fingers crossed on that one, Mike. Birmingham Royal Ballet, uh, obviously, it's David's choreography, um, but also their technical department and their chief executive went to see the production in Japan and loved it. I think they'd very much like to put it into their season, but they have to raise the money for it. That's that's the thing. I mean, it's um, they're expensive things. But fingers crossed on that, I really hope so. The production itself is is a full three-act classical ballet, Mm. absolutely beautiful, beautiful choreographically, and even though I say it myself, pretty good-looking as well. Mm. And Dick Bird designed the set, Mm. and Marco Jonathan designed the lighting. And it it all came together, as ever, at the last minute, Mm. in the most spectacular fashion. For us, we were all really, really thrilled with it. It's very, as I say, it's very beautiful, it's very moving. Bintley's work is always on the edge of eccentric and entertaining. Mm. So there's some very funny things in it as well. Mm. But the sort of lyricism of it is magnificent. And the music is stunning. It's by Carl Davis. Um, He wrote the score... Um, I think about eight or nine years ago. And in fact, there was a version done at Scottish Ballet, but it was, I think it was much smaller and it was done contemporary. Right. Um, so it doesn't bear any relation to this one. Um, and I guess in terms of, if, it, if you are fortunate it, and it comes over to, uh, to Birmingham, um, will there be very much uh, work for you to do on a transfer? I'll be absolutely honest with you, I don't know. No. Because what I haven't done is had time to catch up with David as to whether he would make any major changes to it. Because obviously it's a first first run. And he may have things that he radically wants to change. And also what I don't know is whether the actual physical costumes, I didn't do the set for this, would be available to use here. If it was a case of having to remake everything mm. so that Birmingham had its own permanent production, if you like, that sure. it could roll out whenever it wanted to, then probably I would, I'd make some changes yes. because my taste would have changed by of then. Of course. But yeah. actually, as a piece, if it, if it came over exactly as it was in Japan in, in November, I'd be delighted. I'm going to go back long before... November coming. I'm going to go way back to when you were a child. You were born. You're a child of the fifties, of course. So, Definitely. Um, so I'd like to know um, what your early influences were. I mean, what were you like as a child? Just tell me a little bit about your. Um, probably classic Torian. <laughs> I was always happy with my own company in that I could imagine things. Mm-hmm. I grew up with in a most most fortunate way. I'm one of the luckiest people. So tell me, tell me how. I had, and still have a wonderful father. I had until five years ago yesterday an absolutely magnificent mother, mm-hmm. a dearly beloved sister who lives just up the road. And um, we lived in a fabulous house in the countryside. Where, whereabouts? Um, it was in Shropshire, mm-hmm. on the very borders of Shropshire and Staffordshire. Mm-hmm. Um, I was born in Wolverhampton, in fact, but we moved out to the countryside when I was about seven, I think it was. And I, was, I had a very, very luxurious childhood. I was very happy. I was a bit of a loner. There's no mm-hmm. question about that. And I, I started drawing, like little girls do, horses and ballet dancers and things when I was about five, I think. Mm-hmm. And they weren't very good. 
mm. but it always it always kept me amused and I used to be quite a tomboy as well I loved climbing trees and all that kind of thing and I also grew up overlooking a railway and that was just wonderful it was steam trains then and so I, railway children totally yes I mean I used to spend a lot of time I had a swing on a big oak tree up on the embankment and I could see just watch the trains go by and it was then still a very well used route which was the Hollyhead route oh yes from yes. from the south east in yes. fact so it was a you know we got big trains yes very yes. handsome in fact we had some sort of memorable train incidents and it was great it was great and, and your sister was she older or younger she's young, you? older oh. two and a half years older she also is very practical minded i mean mm -hmm. we're both quite keen diy and doers and we don't neither of us really sit, fit into the kind of sit down and relax mm. thing for me that comes and probably did even then comes with the creative side mm. that's where i get my relaxation from probably mm -hmm. is either discussing things with people mm -hmm. and you know in, in adult life it involves dinner and drinks and things like that yeah. or reading or things like that but the other it is very when you mentioned the Taurus it it's very clear-cut to me that mm -hmm. I'm literally half half of me would have liked to be an engineer or a yes. sculptor and the other half is a the, the more imaginative, thoughtful yes. and imaginative, and, and what about and your, softer side? And what about your parents? What did they? Neither of them had any artistic blood per se. My mm. father was in the manufacturing business. He and his brother, and his father before him, had a lock manufacturing business in Wolverhampton, which made very beautiful um, luggage locks, mm. brass, you know, traditional. Beautifully made. Very, um, very practical. Very practical, yeah. indeed. Yeah. He was on the sales side, but again, he'd always been practical. I mean, he he did all of, you know, DIY, always painted sure. houses, mended cars, you know, so did a lot that, of outside activity. That strand, that strand was from, much from him, yes. yes. On my mother's side, she, she had an engineering background as well, um, very obviously from the Midlands. And in fact, she was a very beautiful young woman went before I knew her and I think she was beautiful right up until she mm -hmm. she passed away but she in fact during the war she went and worked with Rolls Royce in the hope of becoming a test pilot um which was quite quite sort of yeah, adventurous I've still got all her notebooks downstairs actually which are fascinating yeah. absolutely fantastic I've yet to archive those yeah. get them to the Imperial War Museum I think yeah. but in fact she never achieved it because after eight, nine months of the war, I think they realised they must use pilots who could no longer do the actual missions yes. to keep sort of morale up, and also yeah. they were better trained, probably. Yeah. So she went on to maintenance for quite a while. So she had a very practical side to her. She was an excellent cook. She didn't work. She ran household perfectly. On her side, there's quite a lot of artistic elements around, mm. The main, the key one being, although I never knew him and when I was young I wasn't aware of him so much, my great-great-uncle was in fact Edwin Cross, who was a member of the Royal Academy. That's one of his paintings there, which is of my great-great-grandmother. Ah, okay. And that's another of his there. Um, right. Oh, well, so, so, there, so there is some, so there's something in the family. Something in the family. And on her maternal side, my mother's mother's side... She came from a family of very, very keen embroiderers and, you know, artistic in that yeah. slightly old-fashioned feminine yeah. sense. Yeah. But certainly it was there. I, I had several aunts who did magnificent embroideries and And what about your things. early schooling? What was that? Um, that's, the, that's not so good. Not <laughs> that was the downside of living in the country, is, so is that I went to a week? No, I went to a weekly boarding school okay. in Birmingham. My sister was already there. I went relatively young. I went at eight, and I think nobody thought anything of it then. I thought my parents both believed that we would be getting a really good education. They realised by then their family was going to be two girls as opposed to mm. boys, so they put all their energies and indeed finances mm. into 
was sending us to what they considered a very good school. Mm-hmm. I I made it okay in the end, but I was not happy. I I, I really didn't like school, I must admit. Mm. I had some nice friends ultimately, but I really didn't like it. It did not suit me. So when, because you later went on to Wolverhampton College of Art, yes. tell me about the transition into that world. When did you start to feel that you wanted to go down that route? To, to, to quite quite early, yeah. quite early. I think I absolutely knew probably by my early teens that I wanted to do something creative. I didn't know what, of no. course. I continued to have a genuine interest in drawing and painting and mm. and I academically I wasn't particularly good. I got five O levels, which is mm. not great. Mm. One of which was in art and, mm. and and I did flourish in art. I played mm. quite a bit of sport as well in mm. those days. But the art side was strong and I was fortunate enough, in my opinion, to be able to leave school at 16 and enter an art college, which I think I was probably the last year that could do that, actually. Mm. Certainly by... So by 1966, I enrolled for Wolverhampton College of Art and had an inspired tutor, absolutely wonderful, called Bill Kimpton, who's no longer with us, and he was just wonderful. And I did two years of um, what we then called pre-diploma, but was actually foundation course, yeah. as instead of doing A-levels. So you would be finding a direction during that foundation? Yes. What, what did you... I didn't know. You didn't I know loved yourself. everything. You did, yeah. I loved printing, I loved sculpture, I loved textiles, I, mean, I loved the fine art, I loved absolutely everything about I, the foundation course just blew me away well, as I, I recently, perhaps the same for you <laughs> i recently interviewed um roger law of spitting image fame and he said that when i mean his background was not dissimilar that it was in the country in norfolk and when he went to college in the same very similar way he had an artistic bent and didn't really know what he wanted to do he said it was like waking up and going to heaven <laughs> for him yes. it was I, a total that's a lovely way of putting it it's a totally liberating yeah. Thing, I in many respects, I've never done military training or anything like that. But I think any of these big, big mm. things happen. They they are life changing. Mm. And I think if somebody didn't know what to do with their life, didn't particularly want to go through sport or through commerce or whatever, then quite frankly, you wouldn't be wasting your time to do a foundation mm. course because it it's just fabulous. It's mm. so varied, as you remember, and mm. just. The simple principles of learning yeah. about colour and... And as you say, it's great to have a, a, a tutor who gives you some direction. Yes. Inspiring. Cause that, totally. That's not so much the case, I think, these days. I think many students are very much left uh, and they're lacking in that sort of inspirational tutor, those special I people. think possibly. And also how many people are lucky enough to meet somebody who just absolutely can... Yeah. can guide them anyway and he was he was terrific i mean the main thing he was was disciplined and yeah. he, he taught me and all the other students in our class he said the thing is you're not to give up he said if, if you know everybody has bad bad times they you know you, i can get hysterically manically upset about work I'm doing and always have been able to and go into deep deep depressions and he just kept saying no don't stop just make that if it's a drawing you've got to make it work it does you can't not make it work as long as you don't give up on it Mm. it'll turn into something you might hate what it turns into but it will turn into something as opposed to you just throwing it away because you don't think it's very good Mm. and that was an extraordinary lesson to learn i think i'm very undisciplined in my life and in my work and that's probably counteracted by frankly panic Mm. you know deadlines i think that's why i also really perhaps should only ever have done theater where you've actually got a deadline you've got to get something out well after Um, the after your two years in foundation at uh, wolverhampton you Obviously, you came to a point where you needed to decide what to do next. You, you went on to Central. That's uh, right. Well, that, you... that basically was also quite fun, actually, because I honestly didn't know what to do. I was in a real state. I was very keen to 
go down the sculpture route. I was very interested in graphics. Mm. And I had I'd by then become very interested in, in textiles and things as mm. well. And I really couldn't make a... It's a huge decision. You must mm. remember mm. yourself mm. what to go and take your... What is now a degree course mm. in. And I literally overheard somebody in a corridor mention theatre design and I had never heard of it. I didn't know there was such a thing. And so I went to see Bill Kimpton. I said, what's theatre design? <laughs> mm. And he said, oh, oh, it's, you know, things to do with old costumes and, you know, period design and you um, make set designs as well. And I thought, my goodness, that sounds all right. So had your, your, you had no interest in the theatre? You hadn't no. been exposed to much No, theater, I'd or... been a couple of times. Yeah. Been to a panto when I was little and... So you yeah. had no, apart from you know, no. set design costume, you never... You no, never, and I didn't know that existed. I, I would have thought you would have been a child that went to lots of musicals or no, whatever. You know, no, not got, at all. No, well, that's, that's... Mind you, having said that, I did. I loved um, I loved movies yeah. on the telly. Yeah. <laughs> went to a few in the cinema, but yeah. living in the country, again, you sure. don't go that often. But I loved movies on telly. I loved particularly old 1940s, 50s movies and 30s as well. So you All the black and white stuff, because we had a black and white telly. So, God. so you, you would have actually entered Central uh, the late 80s, I would... Uh, sorry, the late 60s. Yes, absolutely. Yes. I came out of Wolverhampton in 68 yeah. and went to Central. And, and so you were there for a three-year Three years, period. yes, absolutely. And going through the... And you started to concentrate very much on theatre design. Yes, it was a theatre design course yeah. run at that time by the wonderful colleague of... RSA, Ralph Coltai. Of course, yeah. Um, yes. Who, again, was an inspiration to me. Yeah. He had a wonderful impact, I think, because he wasn't that hands-on at teaching, in inverted commas. Yeah. But, of course, he was always busy with his own wonderful work, yes. doing ring cycles here yes. and plays there. And he did most of that work in the college. So, so we were kind it. of... Yeah. He that had a lot of assistance on set design. Robin Don worked with him a lot then. But, you and know, course, up, quite often there'd be a huge great model sitting in his office. And, and he was very... He had a lovely way of basically just sneaking round and looking at what people were doing and yeah. then assessing them. And, and he'd nearly always come into the studios after he, he, most people had gone home. And if you were lucky enough to stay on... You'd get a half-hour chat with Ralph, which was magic. And, of course, he was doing very cutting-edge work. Very, yes. In theatre. Yes. Really almost abstract, quite dramatic uh, stuff. Yes, he uh, turned... Very inspirational, I'm sure. He changed the sort of face of theatre design in many respects, I think. Yes. And so we were were seeing that, not necessarily doing it, but But we were seeing it. it. Yes, yes. And the... You know, the whole hierarchy of the three-year courses is, of course, you're seeing the other two years ahead of you of and what they're doing, and then yeah. you're in the same... It's, it's, I think art school or probably university must be the same. It's just a wonderful, wonderful yes. way of learning. I don't, we didn't actually learn to do theatre design as such because, mm. I, like most arts, you can't actually teach somebody to... No. You know, you can teach the practical elements of it but sure. the, the creative side you've got to come up with there is a big difference with theatre of course is you're working to either a script or music or yeah. whatever so there's a kickoff point yeah. uh, which is perhaps where it where it absolutely isn't could not be considered a fine art mm. well then, um, then, then of course you get to a point in this process of um, design education and, and of course it ends and that's when the Adventure really begins. Yes. So tell, tell me, I think your, your beginnings certainly, I think, were with the Glasgow Citizens Theatre. Absolutely. And uh, you did, I think, five, uh, seven productions with um, I, I did. Between 72 and 75. Yes, I, was, I actually was incredibly lucky. I mean, so fortunate in that Philip Prowse, who was the... At that time, he was the head of design at the Citizen Theatre. Giles Havergal was the artistic director, along with Robert David MacDonald. They ran the theatre between the three of them. But obviously, Philip Prowse, anybody in the arts knows, Mm. is is high, Mm. high Mm. style Mm. and art. And he came to our degree show, um, 1971, and... 
wanted two, he wanted an assistant designer and he decided to take on two. And he interviewed after the show myself, Maria Bjornsson, and David Fielding, another great designer. Mm. And Philip decided to take Maria and myself as a sort of double act. We were great friends at college anyway. She was, in fact, a year ahead of me. She was in her second year when I was in my first year. Mm -hmm. But um, in typical Maria fashion, she didn't think she'd learnt enough, so she stayed on an extra year. And in, that in her fourth year and my third year, we became very close friends. Right. Mainly because we we moved our studio onto the paint frame in the Ginetta Cochrane, so we could work you know, at yeah. weekends and things like that. And, yeah. it, and we just got on really well. It was yeah. great fun. So that was a very special thing to get to be offered a job at the Glasgow Citizen and with your best friend. Yeah. Doesn't get much better than that. So you were so, actually there in, in Glasgow? Yes. We, we both started at the same time, which must have been this early September. I don't honestly remember. Mm. And we did a complete year of so-called assisting. But again, luckily, which was fantastic... Philip um, was very keen that his so-called assistants actually didn't do that much assisting for him, except on a practical level, mm. do painting and, mm. you know, mm. breaking down our costumes and things yeah. like that. But the, the main thing was that we would actually have our own design work. Mm. Initially, together, Maria and I designed our first big show, which was Galileo Brecht, together. Mm. I le then lent much more towards set yeah. and Maria much more towards costumes. Uh -huh. That changed later. But, yes, we we did a complete year together. And then I think Maria did... I think she left after the year and moved back down to London. Mm. And I stayed on for another six months or so working at the sits, mm. again, designing pieces for myself as well. And then I was invited back fairly regularly once I'd moved back down to London. And, of course, when you were back in, in, in London in, I guess, 73... I think it was about 73. Yeah. Yes, it was. You, you, because you then, of course, the the project that's followed you around for <laughs> yes. the last 30-odd years, which <laughs> is the Rocky Horror that's Show. That's right. Which, you know, became... Uh, which was originally at the Royal Court Theatre upstairs. That's right. 50-seater, um, uh, I think it was. Yeah, which, of course, became a piece of history all around because later became the Rocky Horror Picture Show as well, for which you did. Now, I, I'm, I was interested to read, going through some background on you where you were when you first when you were first you know i think read the script or uh, was talking about the rocky horror show you said you thought the story sounded awful <laughs> you had no desire to design a lot of drag costumes for no money <laughs> more or less true <laughs> but you had enough work at the time <laughs> I'd say, so um i tell well, you what the background of that is as well is that some wonderful woman called Harriet Cruikshank, who now is a producer and very, very well-established agent, but she produces as well now. She, at the time, was running the um, Royal Court Theatre upstairs, and I'd known her from The Citizens. Mm -hmm. And she got my number, I think, from Philip, my London number, and she rang me up and said, Sue, please, 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 would you consider designing a show for us? You're my last hope. I've tried anybody who's any good, and they've all turned it down. <laughs> good, good. Great compliment, good great gamut, start. Yeah. She said, please, 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 if nothing else, just see the directors to stop him <laughs> plaguing me to find a costume designer. <laughs> and, and so I, I agreed to it. It was a very rainy Saturday, and Jim Sharman, the director mm. of Rocky Horror, came round to see me in my tiny little studio that I then had. Um, and we just hit it off like it, it was... Mm. It was just immediate fun. And, and, you, and you apparently had a minuscule budget for the... It costumes. was tiny, yes. Yeah. Yes, it was. So, so that, was the fee. Yeah, so, so presumably that... was 50 quid, so which I shared... I, I halved that with Colin McNeil, <laughs> dear beloved Colin McNeil, who was the... At the time, they would have called him wardrobe master, but he was the main costume maker at the Citizens, and I managed to get him to come down and help me to get through this mad piece. And presumably you had to cut your cloth because with very little money you had to <laughs> yes. find... A lot of it we just borrowed um, from the sits. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it we found, some things we bought, and we sort of vaguely made some things as well, which was... It was, 
It turned into great fun, but I must admit, on paper, it didn't sound enticing. Mm. I mean, it sounded interesting, but, you know, but, not, I, I didn't think it would really work. Yeah. A lot of other people did. Yeah. I mean, certainly Charmin thought it would work. Yeah. A wonderful, wonderful set designer, Brian Thompson, yeah. Australian, again, as is Jim Charmin, Richard O'Brien's a New Zealander by birth. And we worked together a lot, actually, after yeah. that. It was a great kick-off from that point of view as well. Well, j- just moving on from that, with um, the, the Rocky Horror Show, obviously uh, you became then more known for costume. Mm. Suddenly you were a costume designer. Exactly. Up, up until then, I'd done either only sets. Maria and I did a lot of work together, mm. where I would... This was mainly for Scottish Opera, actually, with under the leadership of David Poutney. Yep. And um, I would design the sets and Maria the costumes. Mm. And that that all swivelled on its head yes. eventually. And, and also from Maria's point of view, she she got to a point where she just didn't actually really enjoy doing costumes so much. Um, so she made it a rule that she would never do just costumes again. Right. So that obviously changed that a little bit. Um, and certainly Rocky... Became, I became known as a costume designer <laughs> in rather a strange way, really. <laughs> yes. But um, because of the opera work and everything else, I was still doing a lot of period-type shows as well. So sure. I mean... So it was a nice blend, actually. And the kind of contrast between, um, you know, the costumes for Rocky Horror Show, which are kind of outrageous and, you know, surprising, you, you then, a little, a few years later, you were asked by Peter Greenaway to to produce the costumes for the draftsman's contract, which was, uh, at the time, a visually stunning film. And interestingly, I went last week to see, uh, at the British Film Institute, Barry Lyndon. Ah, beautiful um, film. Which, you know, I have to say, I'd only seen small sections of it on video. Hopeless way to watch Barry Lyndon. But I watched the two and a half hours of Barry Lyndon last week, totally captivated. Mm. About everything, actually. Cost- that was that was a groundbreaking film, Beautiful. I think, wasn't it? And the costumes were. Is that done. Tom Rand? Have I got no, that right? No, it was uh, Melina Calanero and oh. Ulla Britt Solderen. I think it's the name. The two, they both won Oscars, joint Oscars for the costumes. But the, uh, there was sort of connection in that I was I, because I was so freshly aware of Barry Lyndon, and I watched Draftsman's Contract last night, and and looked at your costume. Very interesting that yours were very pared down. You used um, incredible simplicity. You know, there were lots of blacks and whites or whites with oranges all the way through. You used it in a very graphic way, which I thought was very effective. And yet, the you know, often the close-ups with wigs and so forth were kind of verging on the outrageous. Yes, yes. It was a very interesting... It it was a good-looking film, I have to say. And I, I must also give credit. I mean, there's lots of things that I've designed... And lots of parts of Rocky for which I completely can credit myself. But nothing comes without influence. Mm. And certainly the concept of Rocky, putting everybody in their underwear and all of that, was worked out between myself and Jim Sharman. So in a way it's original to both of us. But I wouldn't have done that without Jim's brief, if you see what I mean. And the same with something like Draftsman's Contract. Greenaway was was almost specific about yes, a very, about very about the brief yes. and cer- certainly he was he mentioned last year in Marion Bad and that's what he yeah. was really remaking of and also he didn't want it to be Barry Lyndon yeah. you know because well, I the, think that, I'd not you know he wanted the, it much sharper yes I mean, that, you could see you very, could see it can't I, you now I can yes. very so he was very very strong about that he was also Again, a wonderful, wonderful kind of influence. He was very, very strong on keeping to the concept, not letting me waver. Another wonderful director, John Caird, said, you're the only person I know that can talk yourself out of a good idea. (laughs) And it is true. That's that's the confidence thing again. It's the job of a director, isn't it, to direct? Yes. The thing that I think um, anyone listening to this has to realise about working within whether it's film or theatre, is that it is often, it, not often, it is a collaborative totally. process. yes. Obviously you're selecting people who are extremely good in the different departments. Yes. But ultimately it is a collaboration between 
people, and I want to talk about that a little yes. bit later. But no, very strongly said. And certainly in the case of Draftsman, Peter Greenway, he actually absolutely said, no, you know, stick to it, keep it clean, black and white, and all the rest of it. He said, I want it to look absolutely wonderfully, period, and, mm. you know, all the rest of it. Um, and for instance, there's a there's complete actual, uh, what do I call it, not mistake, it's a deliberate flouting of historical accuracy in that the, the wide panniers of the women's costumes yes. and the period the piece is set in are completely mismatched. Yes. <laughs> in other words, they didn't exist then. So artistic <laughs> Totally no, artistic. Yeah. But again, Peter said, no, 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 let's go for it. It's not, we're not after historical accuracy. We want to feel we are. Mm. And I'd learnt this also from before and afterwards working on Shakespeare pieces, particularly in the smaller theatres, that quite often historical accuracy is actually misleading and it's better to invent it for yourself and it's more fun and it you can make it read to an audience. So, for instance, the whole development of what the draftsman's costume actually was with all those mm. frills yes. underneath it and everything, I don't think that ever existed, but it made it kind of... It was my way of imagining how the stylized yes, shapes were formed. It's and very interesting that there was a film again a few years before that called The Duelist, which was Ridley Scott's first film. Which I, I don't think I ever saw, actually. Well, I it, do apologise. It's, it's interesting simply because he, uh, I remember at the time, the main characters wore tiny little plaits that hung down the side, which I don't think were accurate at all, but they looked fantastic. So I, th I think the idea of um, putting in your own artistic sort of license is, is well makes, i think it makes for a you know a very yes. special film i think if you're just a slave to accuracy it just well, well i never have been i mean i have to say i i i'm pretty good on my historical knowledge and i'm pretty that was the other thing i didn't mention earlier on actually is funnily enough the one subject i loved at school absolutely loved was history ah. and i'd forgotten that as a link oh, that's well, a very strong one yeah. And also growing up in the country and actually a, su a very short bicycle ride away from the White Ladies Priory where King Charles hid in the oak tree. Mm. Um, I always would have been a royalist, I'm absolutely certain of that. But I, I sort of had a real fascination with Charles II. Oh. And uh, apart from anything else, he, all the portraits of him make him look so handsome. Yeah. And that comes right back into Draftsman's contract. Okay, I mean, it, you know, it's absolutely there. And was it, as a result, I mean, after Draftsman, which, which got a lot of critical acclaim at the time, and visually it was featured everywhere, you, you went on and did quite a, a long period for the Royal Shakespeare Company. Was there, yes, was there a connection I, there, or was that... Um, uh, no, I don't know that there was, really. I think it was just my time. I'm trying to remember how the first piece I did for the RSC was uh, Ben Johnson, Every Man in His Humour. Yes, in with, in, in, in the Swan, the then yeah. newly built Swan Theatre. And then you had a pretty good run. I mean, it was sort of dipped uh, yes, in I did a lot. The National I, Theatre and uh, Raw Shakespeare. Yes, um, I think it's just names start to just yeah. come up. It's and people ask you to do things and see your work. Um, I, I also watched, I, I watched Porgy and Bess, and I, I was very interested in that because, you know, you have this reputation for kind of being, and I think it all stems from, from the thing that, that, that is stuck to you, which is Rocky. And I was, I was pleasantly surprised to discover that your work is incredibly varied, and it's not in any shape or form, um, you know, locked into one particular sort of outrageous, you know, no. whenever I read pieces about you, they talk about you know, leopard skin and your love of that, so, which which is absolutely fine. But looking at Porgy and Bess, I thought that was such a beautiful range of costumes. And watching the opera itself, it um, the sheer volume of people. It's and the spectacular. Ma the, the, the blocking of the people together with all these different um, costumes, even down to things like unstructured collars on shirts, you know, which from the back of the theatre you wouldn't even see. But... It was um, the detail in that I thought was extraordinary. You know, it really did work very well. Well, we the brief for Porgy, and indeed this is a nice link up with the with the Shakespeare's because the Shakespeare's I always hope to do them with wit, but um, certainly the I mean the Shakespeare's the first Ben Johnson piece, and we went on to do another one. Um, 
John Caird and myself, the director, we very much wanted it to, to become real. Mm. I was very worried about the every man in his humour because I found it very difficult to read on the page. And John said, oh, don't worry. He said, just think of it like the archers. He said, it's exactly the same. He said, it's up to me to make the script work. Don't you worry about that. You just have fun designing it. But And again, one invented um, realistic details that, you know, for all we know, absolutely never happened yeah. and, and made it all very accessible and mm. rich and period. And with Porgy and Bess, it, it, from Trevor Nunn's brief and from the work that had already started with John Gunter on the set, the the absolute prime important thing was that we believed these people mm. and that we believed them with dignity. Mm. Because even in whenever we did it, which was about 80 Six, I suppose. Might have been even earlier. It was um, 93. 93, all right. Later than I thought. No, it wasn't. It was much earlier. The the filming of it might have been 93. Yes, I think The actual was. production, yeah, which we did for Glyndebourne originally, yes. was, was in the mid-80s. And even then, particularly doing a, a wonderful piece of opera like mm. Gershwin's, um, there was still a little bit of an edge just in, in the opera world as to whether it really was an opera or whether mm. it was a musical. Oh, yeah. And to be doing it with an entirely black cast, which is mm. it's absolutely obligatory mm. within the, the copyright of doing the opera, which is wonderful, mm. um, apart from four white parts in it, um, doing that at Glyndebourne mm. was quite sure. radical in its yeah. own right. And so Trevor was absolutely passionate that we just knock people's eyes out with the the tragic situation these yes. people are in and just the and so the absolute naturalism of it yes. was paramount that, i think that's what struck it was me. very it important was very very naturalistic and obviously mm. I've, I've only seen the film version which was as you say made yeah. later but what struck me uh, you know having been involved with opera myself for um you know, for a, for a period, i was you know i i, I understand you know what? What I think a lot of people don't realise is it's probably the most expensive art form, anyway, to to put it together. It probably simply because is, of the sheer volume of people on stage. Yes. So you know the the ticket price, for example, which people always moan about. One can understand it. you're there often. I mean, for example, I was looking at your production stills from from Wagner's Lohengrin, uh, which is a an it is spectacular, an isn't it? Which I think. Is a, uh, Stefanado. That's like, right. Another, design, another another wonderfully eminent. He's, well, designer for industry. Well, I've seen you know. many of his productions yes. at ENO, of yes. course, and they're always spectacular. But the, the, your production with him of, of Lohengrin and your costumes, particularly the, the, the that very you know double horizontal set where you've got a, a top row of extraordinary soldiers in what look like sort of pre-Raphaelite versions of armor, suits of armor, very ornate and yes. beautifully lit. Holding these sort of they were extraordinary they were i apart from obviously I give a huge credit on the Lohengrin, particularly to Keith Warner, who was the director and Stefan mm. Lazaridis i I couldn't have made my way through that conceptually, mm. and I had trouble with it. Mm. I really had trouble with it, and they both very bossy, if you like they both said, no, 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 it work, come on, get on with it, you know. This how you know keep it surreal, keep it this. Mm. They were incredibly influential about mm. what it actually looked like. Well, it looks fantastic, um, and it, it came off a treat. I yeah. mean, but I I I I floundered on that one, floundered well, a lot. Let's... But in the end, I had a huge backup from the people in the the actual production side in Bayreuth as well. They were tremendous. I mean, all production departments are wonderful, mm. but they supported me enormously. It was not an easy route. But it certainly paid off. It was extraordinary. But something like the the, the Brabant's chorus of the old mm. soldiers. Mm. I'd um, I just recently got a computer, and it was my first show really where I managed to make the computer do something that I couldn't do. I, I know you, you did a bit of distortion. <laughs> yes, I was desperate. And it, and it, I hadn't it, designed them, <laughs> and Stefan and Keith were coming around to have a look at the designs, and I was going. Absolutely tearing my hair out. I was terrified. I thought, oh, they're going to kill me. I'm done. So I just panicked for an afternoon and put put this thing together on the computer. And they just went, oh my God, that's fantastic. So then the problem was how to make that for real. Yeah. 
And in the end, we had the armour itself was made of vac-formed plastic, all from moulds. Yeah. But this brilliant man in Munich, he said, oh, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll do the main body of it in solid vac form. He said, and then I'll do a see-through vac form and I'll offset it. So ah, you get so this you ghosting this, yes, yes. and then sprayed into it. Which, you, were, which you achieved on the computer. Abs- right? Yes, because I did, that's right. And it does look extraordinary. It's I mean, amazing. Yeah, and, 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 and there you are. It was you a real thrill. Absolutely, it was a real thrill. Yeah. And also the writing on the cloaks yes. and things. We did all that in yeah. the end on organza. And yeah. So they had Lovely. this sort of old script. Well, as we, <laughs> we go into the last 15 minutes of, of this interview, I want to just talk a little bit about the process of of what you go through um you know the initial the initial concept and then the development and then leading to production because i think it's, it would be useful for people to understand those different stages because ultimately when it leads to production there are many things you have to be aware of which you know which are behind the scenes mm. it's about can you break this set down because there's another one coming on this afternoon so let's just go through the the initial stages you, uh, you your approach uh, by a director with a script or whatever how does it start that, that's the stop. In my case, it's nearly always been the director that has selected me, but quite often it's the company, mm. let's say in the case of the RSC or the National, maybe the company that contact you mm. as to whether you'd be free and want to do it. And on quite a few occasions, it's been from somebody I've never met before, so we meet to see how we get on, hopefully show them a bit of work or whatever but a lot of the work is from people who've seen my work or Mm. know of me so that's the first kickoff is the invitation if you like to do the job Mm. and I'm sure it's the same in any discipline that invitation is what really gives you the kick to be able to do it and I think in a way that's why perhaps a lot of other jobs even in the creative world would not have suited me because I if I had to bid for a job, yes, and, uh, then I wouldn't have the confidence to pull it off. Yeah. I really wouldn't. It's, it's the initial burst of absolute pride and confidence that somebody me. wants me. Yes. That's what kicks in. As you probably realise from everything else I've been saying, that doesn't hold up for very long. The minute you have a, a little downward bit, you, I, I certainly panic. Mm. I, I think perhaps I've started panicking much more in my later years than I used to as a youngster. But I suppose that's inevitable. You mm. just have the, the courage when you're younger. And there's less riding on it. However, yes, the first go-off is the in, is a, an introduction. Would you either like to do this existing piece or we're doing a new piece? And would you, so, you know, all that goes on. Um, meanwhile, the, the behind-the-scenes stuff is basically agents negotiating contracts sure. and fees and yep. all that malarkey. But meanwhile, the, you begin the cre- creative process. Obviously, it's quite different if I'm doing both sets and costumes mm. as to when I'm doing just costumes because the concept of like, as simple as what period are we going to do it in if it's an already existing piece or, yep. you know, do we want it to look cartoon or, yep. you know... Uh, do we want it to look as if it's imperial? Or all of those things uh, can happen in many ways. If it's a, if if I'm doing costumes, it may be that I come in after that concept's already been developed by the set designer and the of director, yeah. um, or I can come in right at the beginning, which is much more fun. Yeah. It just depends on the timing yeah. and on when they've asked me to do it. It's yeah. and whether it's because I'm the first port of call or whether they may have had somebody else do it who's pulled out or all sorts of things can happen so the the initial thing is you you work on the concept now at the same time of course you take into consideration is it a tiny studio theater in chichester in which case you know we haven't got any money we just have to do what we can and not much space either or is it a big touring production in which case that's important and also is it going to just play one season or might it you know all of those considerations are there money is a big one a huge one i mean not and always has been i mean there's never been enough money to do productions and never enough money for anything is there but mm. and it's it's totally relative there wasn't enough money to do the low and green in bayreuth because mm. it's so huge mm. even though they have fabulous resources mm. there wasn't enough money for the show i did at chichester which was about lee miller there wasn't enough money for draftsman's contract which Funnily enough, is why they're all in calico and cotton. We couldn't afford any other fabrics. We could only afford things that were really cheap. 
Yes. And rather than use cheap, nasty fabrics, we decided it would be much nicer to... Well, in a way, I decided it, very influenced by Philip Prowse, I have to say, mm -hmm. that actually, at least if I used calico and occasional bits of silk, which sometimes you could get quite cheaply anyway, yeah. then at least we could paint it and it would have a sort of sculptural feel mm. rather than using nasty, cheap fabrics mm. that don't do anything. But anyway, yes, the budget is, of course, important because that's where you you basically need to set your scale as to what your what your ambition of design mm. can be. And in some cases, it's so radical that you have to... The design concept has to actually contain a radical lack of budget. Mm. Mm. You know, for instance, maybe you use old clothes. So do you find on those occasions when you're... I mean, as you've already said, I mean, the arts generally tend to be under-budgeted. For what they I mean, are. Unless you, yes. are, unless you are Kubrick and then you obviously get everything. But... But generally speaking, it's under budgeted. Do you find that that given those circumstances, you 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 find that a, a, a sort of creative challenge? Do I don't think it hurts. There are there are times when you actually simply just mm. heartbreakingly can't can't do what should be done for the piece, and also it's very very difficult with things like opera. You just simply cannot have less people because musically it won't stand up. Mm. You know and whatever you dress a chorus in costs a certain amount of money of you know and just the, as you said the amount of people on stage more or less the same in musicals you know they can't have too few people otherwise you can't mm. the, the music doesn't work mm. and you can't hear them you know even with sound systems yeah. more crucially not probably because they're not they're not sound sounded so yeah. to speak as I say, I think every show I've done, with the exception of one, which was The Hunchback of Notre Dame, I did the costumes mm. for um, a Disney co-production yes. in Berlin. And I have to say, there probably were budget restrictions, but, but it was such a big piece they didn't come my way. I sort of pretty much got everything I wanted. It was chaos trying to do it, but I must admit it turned into a lot of fun in the end and looked great, I thought. Um, but that had a lot of resources thrown at it. An awful lot. What's, um, what's the, the the ratio these days between costume and set design? I mean, I know that... It's, I don't know whether I could... Is it most, you, well, I mean, now you, you are known as a costume designer first and foremost. Yes, I think I, think I probably when am. When was the last time that you, you were responsible for set as well? Was it? Funnily enough, the one we're reviving now in Birmingham yeah. I, is set designer right. as mine as well. I'm trying to think now, when was the last... I did Chichester, Six Lives of Lee Miller. I did that sets for that. I've had revivals, Midsummer Night's Dream, which mm -hmm. I designed both set and costumes for. That's gone on a few times. I mean, do you miss, um, do you miss not doing uh, as sometimes? Much? Yes. yes. You, would you be in uh, in complete control, set and costumes, or do you never do the two? Oh, I've I've, I've often done both. Done both. Oh quite, yes, the only time I you, never did. So that I, gives you complete control, really. I've, the visual I, spectacle, exactly. Really, apart from the lighting, yes. And, um, no, apart from the one the shows I did with Maria back in the seventies, I've never not done my own costumes. Mm. So anything I've designed the set for, I've also done the costumes. Mm. Both ways round. It's it's a hard question and what a nice one to not know the answer to yeah. because working with a, another designer and. We're quite a small world, yeah. designers, so we yeah. all tend to either know of each other or know each other. And designers as a breed mm. across all the disciplines of mm. design are, quite frankly, bloody nice people, normally, <laughs> you know. So the chance of you working with somebody who isn't going to be a joy yeah. to be swapping ideas with, yeah. not to mention eating after the rehearsal, or, sure. you know, is unlikely. But also creatively, two heads is an extraordinary thing to have together. Yes, yes. And I've I've had great working relationships with all the set designers I've worked with, many of whom are costume designers in their own right as well. But I must admit, being in sole charge, good. especially in a big theatre, I mean, doing it, the shows at ENO and Opera North where you're yeah. doing the set and the costumes, it's great fun. Well, you know, it's I mean, a lot of work, mind you. But the costume thing also has its has its own... Its own world. It's it's so beguiling, and when you're 
when you're only doing the costumes, a lot rides on the drawings for me then. Yes. Because that's all I've got to show up until we get some and costumes produced. So I, I think that puts a lot of emphasis on the drawings for myself that I could well do without, actually. It kind of panics me a bit in that point of view. Once I start fittings and things like that, yeah. it, it rolls along. Well, having, but, having looked at your drawings over the last couple of weeks and then relating them to productions, which I've only seen through... Films. No, I haven't got enough um, photographs, actually. They're remarkable uh, in their sort of accuracy. And, I mean, you, you tend to draw in a very... It, they look very immediate. I mean, they have a sort of um, fluidity in that. Oh, thank you. Well, thank they, you for they, that. They do. And then you see them in the flesh, as it were, and you can immediately see the connection. So that you, you obviously have got... Something in your mind that you can you can get across and translate into reality. I think that's the other reason why quite often doing the drawings is a painful experience, yeah. very painful, is because through experience I've learned how difficult it can be if you haven't got your concept right and you haven't drawn it how you want it to look. Mm. It would be better not to draw it at all and just make it up as you go along, mm. which is sometimes the case with contemporary pieces and pieces that have absolutely no money. You might just have to do them from junk shops and mm. charity shops or, sure. you know, find somewhere doing them, um, which has its own fun as well. That's mm. great. But quite frankly, if you're going to do a drawing, it may as well be what it's going to look like because then the artist who's going to wear it knows what they're going to look like. Of course. The director knows yeah. what it's going to look like. Yeah. Very, very importantly in um, in musicals, the ballet and, and opera as well, mm. the, the choreographer knows what they're going to look mm. like. And you can have serious discussions as to whether they can move in them, whether, you know, all of that side of things. So it's actually, it makes life a lot easier Mm. to do drawings that do look as you would wish mm. the production to look. Well, I think... Let, um, but it's it, not necessary, but it's easier You said just, when you've done them. You said just a little <laughs> earlier about um, two minds being put together, and I just wanted to touch on uh, relationships with directors, and one in particular that you've actually worked with seven on seven productions. That's Jonathan Miller, who's got a pretty oh. big mind. Yes, um, to, to work, oh, he's extraordinary. Yes. And let's just talk about one production in particular, and that, that, that is um, The Mikado, which is still running and has been running ever since that was... That was 86, right. I yeah. think, yep. Um, very successfully and uh, extraordinary looking, because it's set in the 1930s, if, if I remember rightly, with Correct. some very, very outrageous um, costumes. How did that come about, and what was the relationship between you and Jonathan Miller in in the creation of the, the look of the... Because the costumes play a very big part. They do. In, and in and again, with the magnificent set from Stefan Lazaridis, mm. who just put a, put a canvas up for me to paint onto. I mean, it's mm. just wonderful, mm. wonderful. Mm. The concept of the hotel 1930s setting, I think you'd have to talk to Stefan and Jonathan Miller to hammer that one out. Sure. I'm pretty sure it was Stefan's idea to set it in a white hotel... But it was very, very much Jonathan's concept mm. to base it on the Marx Brothers and set it in the 30s. I mean, you know, and his whole thing, you know, gentlemen of Japan, oh, we're not having any of that rubbish, you know, we just sort that one out when we get to it. And just his actual humour is just so wonderful in there. So the concept was very much already established when I came on board for that. And so we just started thinking of people to base each costume on, you know, mm. and, in the men's lineup, there's a dagger left, there's a this and the other, you know, mm. a rich banker, you know, it's just great fun. Mm. And of course, Again, look, quite difficult to, for me to get to the point of issuing finished drawings. Sure. I just thought, I kept thinking, well, they're going to be so boring. Yeah. You know, they're just in all, ordinary sort of period clothes. Yeah. Uh, you know, shouldn't we be doing something more fun with it? But you know, again, Jonathan's so persistent. He said, no, 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 stick to the concept. It's going to work. It's going to be fabulous. You know, and push it, encourages you well, on. You, and it was great. It, well, was a, got, it was a joy to work yeah. on. And, if you, and, of course, you've done seven productions. I know. So you obviously got on very well. And I love Jonathan's company. I mean, yeah. he's just 
Renaissance man, isn't well, he? I mean, he's back in the in, in the, you know, now, I, I know. Just, just, just now, you haven't so. seen it. Have you? No, I haven't. No, no. no I, I did hear reviews. Wish he'd asked me to do it, but he didn't. Yes. There you go. Yeah. Um, well, I think he's based it on black and white photographs. Yes. From, from yeah, Cartier Bresson. No, Cartier Bresson. Yes. 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 No, I'm sure it'll we be... did that with Carmen a lot, actually. Yes. Well, I I, yeah. I have seen Carmen, and uh, remember that. Uh, I think he's brilliant, Jonathan. I mean, I must admit, I. The luck or the fortune of my career is is the people I've worked with. I yeah. mean, my goodness, they're all well. Another there's some stunning brains well, that another, I've worked another with. Another person you know. who you've worked with who's in the news today, of course, is Roman Polanski. Oh, is he? I haven't heard it. Well, today. he wants to go back to America, and <laughs> there's a court case today to to see whether the case against him can be dropped after all those years. But of yeah, course, you, 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 sure. you, you've um, created the costumes for Dance of the Vampires, which is, I think, running. Still, it just, is. Just it's still just running. still running yeah. in a place called Oberhausen yeah. in Germany. Oh, it's a wonderful show. I love it. I'm very fond of nearly all the shows I've mm. done. You know, there's a few that I could do without, but. Very few, indeed. Mm. And I just, I think it is like having children doing a show. I don't have any children of my own, and I think those are all my babies, and I love them just like you would love children. Yeah. Well, I think you know, I've, I've known you know, designers before who they don't have children, and um, you know, it's it's very clear to me that you know the whole process of of creating, going through the development and finally producing a piece of creativity is like, it, it becomes very much their children. It's a long, arduous, so. emotional process. Yes. Mind you, having said that, yourself included, there's a lot of genius designers who do have children and still manage to create wonderful, wonderful magic. But I think perhaps it gives, it may be part of my style, I suppose, is that the one thing I do do is get incredibly involved emotionally with the piece mm. and depending on what it is involved with the artists who i'm dressing or the mm. or the people I'm, who are building the set or the people who are painting or the certainly costume wig makeup you know all of that all of those wonderful talented people mm. you know they it's very engrossing sure yeah. well, when you're not um <laughs> When you when you do have moments uh, in between shows, what what do you do to relax? What other interests do you have? What do you right at the moment trying to clear out boxes and oh, settle you, in here? Do you know I'm always yeah. busy? I don't know that I've ever not got anything well, to I'm do. I'm looking at the dates. You, you seem to, as I said, you know, in in those uh, thirty five years. You know, 82 productions. I'm sure there's been very little gap. Actually, there hasn't. I mean, there's a gap now. I mean, I've got the ballet coming on in Birmingham, which opens next week. Mm. And after that, I do have a gap, mm. quite a long one at the moment. Mm. It's not such good news. And I think everybody thinks I've retired ever since I got the MBE. I've got a theory about it. <laughs> Moved to the country and got an MBE, that's it. Curtains, well, curtains um, for Blaine. Um, but actually... I've never particularly had hobbies. There's lots I would like to have had, but I haven't. I must admit, it, that plus the social life that goes with a life in the theatre basically That's completely enough. filled me up for years and years and years and years. <laughs> Things may be very different now I'm down here, and once I do get this place straight, yeah. I, I must admit there's a lot of sort of craft side of arts that I'd quite like to pursue. I'd mm. love to... I'd love to do proper painting. Mm. I'd love to maybe learn portraiture. Mm. Love to learn a language, or at least manage. You know, there's so many things I'd like to do, as we all think, don't we? Well, let's, let's just end <laughs> on, on um, the possibility of, you know, various young hopefuls that might be listening to this and um, any advice you might want to give them. Because it, it's, obviously, it can be, it's a very successful world that you inhabit now. It's hard work. It's it, hard work. And strapped for cash yep. and all those things. But what would you say? I'm sure, you know, there's still many young young designers get, going into theatre design and costume design, you know, wanting to follow very much in the same footsteps that you've done. Mm. What sort of advice would you give them? If it's pre-training, I personally, but this is, I'm biased here, I would say that doing theatre design as opposed to specifically costume design, if you want to work in theatre, I think is much better because I think the three-dimensionality of costume, 
on a stage is what I enjoy, as well as the, the emotional interpretive side of it. I love the fact that I'm making shapes on the stage. That's why I love doing ballet or musicals as well as straight theatre. But if you it, obviously if you want to go into films, TV, whatever, then perhaps as a costumer, then costume designer, maybe a concentrated costume course would be better. But the the overall advice I'd give would probably be the same as Bill Kimpton said to me, don't give up. You know, in other words, you've got to hold your ground. Mm. And many, many young designers who absolutely have to find work doing something go and assist other designers and all the rest of it. Very hard when you're earning money to then not earn anything to design a show of your own. So it's a very big temptation is to carry on assisting. Mm. And after a certain amount of time, it's very difficult to break that mould mm. in, in the perception of everybody around you. Mm. So if you really, really want to be designing, you've just got to hang in there. Mm. And also don't don't jump before... Don't think I've got to work at the National with Nick Heitner or the RSC with the most famous directors. What you've got to do is meet your own contemporaries who will grow up with you, um, who will be the future directors, the future writers. Writers are very important as well, of course. I mean, that's, you know, goodness me. We wouldn't have much theatre without them. (laughs) But, you know, and in a way I can sort of understand maybe my feeling about art school is you go there to learn art, but perhaps the university degrees are are more interesting because you're going to meet people in the other disciplines Mm. and that make your contacts there. But it's it's pretty important to, to really do the stuff that doesn't pay in order to get to know the people. Mm. And that's a tough one. Yeah. It's a very tough one. Okay, on that note, Sue Blaine, thank you very much. Thank you, Mike.